0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
2: I'd like to think that people are having more of these conversations. I mean, I'm having these conversations more outside of the sanctity of like private space and close friendships like we have these conversations at work now
0: this is death sex and money the show from wnyc about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more i'm anna sale Last week, we shared an episode that we released in 2020 about race and friendship. When I think back on that episode, the image that first comes to my mind is of Antoinette, a Black woman in Dallas, who described getting a phone call at home on a weekend when her ceiling was leaking. The call came from a white colleague who was worried about a terse text exchange between them. Here's how Antoinette described that call back then. I said, hey,
2: my ceiling's leaking. I have maintenance people coming in and out. I'm trying to wrangle that situation. And it, it didn't feel like she heard me. Ultimately, I wanted apologizing for my short response to her.
0: I talked to Antoinette about that again when we reached back out to listeners from that episode to hear whether anything had shifted in their friendships since... I want to start, actually. So, so when you think back on that conversation that we had and about that incident, like um, the getting a call from a white coworker on a weekend um, where she wanted to talk about her feelings about um, whether you were being curt about the cancellation of a meeting. Um, how do you think about it now?
2: It's wild to me because I feel like that conversation was like at the precipice of what we would then see unfold. And I feel like we were chewing some concepts very early on and it was it was new to have those conversations. And then after the summer of twenty twenty, when everyone who had eyes and the willingness to watch George Boyd's murder. I think if you left that situation with a mindset that was unchanged, I don't feel like I am going to compel you. And it really solidified in my mind that that is no longer my work. That's not my way to carry.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could draw the line for me from watching the murder of George Floyd to thinking about in everyday social interactions um, with work colleagues, like uh, what your role was in making white women feel comfortable.
2: Mm. I think it's around the basis. Of where do our humanities intersect? Mm. And when do you see me as having as human an experience that you're having? I can think of numerous instances where I am curt and short, and in hindsight, <laughs> I should have been more patient or, you know, responded differently or took more time. I think that's a basic human Experience, but am I allowed to miss the mark on being curt in the wrong moments? Who do you allow that for, and who don't you? Like, when that happens, do you consider my humanity and see yourself in me?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if this weekend. You got a call from a white coworker who wanted to talk about her feelings about whether you had communicated in the right way about understanding that a meeting was canceled. Um, what would happen?
2: Mm. Wow. I'm being really honest today, I probably wouldn't answer the phone because it's the weekend. Um, if I did answer the phone, Um, I don't think I would digest the conversation in the same way, in the sense that I'd be like, thanks for sharing how you feel, and then I'd get off the phone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You'd be like, it is not my job to make you feel differently. I do not need to manage these feelings for you. No. Do you think your work colleagues have noticed a change in how you expect to be treated by them, particularly your white colleagues.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I'm just not one to suffer fools. Period. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I got a little bit more resolved in that stance too, um, in the sense that some conversations, I'm just not
0: willing to engage in anymore. While Antoinette has been dialing things back and drawing the line with co-workers, we heard from another listener, Matt, about his new feelings of solidarity with people at work. Matt is Korean and was raised by a white family who adopted him. When we first spoke, he talked about his excitement about a new friendship with a cool co-worker.
3: When we spoke, I really didn't know any other um, Asian people other than my my colleague.
0: They became friends. But since that episode came out, Matt started feeling pulled back to upstate New York, where he was raised, and decided to leave the overwhelmingly white newsroom in South Carolina, where he had worked.
3: So I just put my two weeks notice in, and I quit my job without anything lined up, and moved back up to New York Um and, you know, I thought that it'd be a few months, you know, before I'd find a new job and then a full year passed.
0: Matt had a lot of time on his hands. And in the spring of 2022, he threw himself into a project photographing other Korean adoptees. He joined Facebook groups and met people with histories similar to his own.
3: It was just surreal to, to hear other people's experiences that were literally exactly like mine. Mm. Um, people had the exact same thoughts and um curiosities and um struggles
0: like what's what's an example of something you heard somebody else say and you were like yes (laughs) Oh,
3: uh well you know this is a small thing but i it, it stayed in my memory this one person i interviewed and photographed for the project talking about how you know, she hated, she, she used the word hate um, to describe the way she felt about her eye shape when she was young. You know, she didn't have a lot of role models of um, Asian women in TV and movies that um, she could use as um, examples of how, the example she used was how to do her makeup. I just remember when I was a kid, I, I, I told my mom one day, like, how, how I hated my eyes, and 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 she told me that my eyes were beautiful. And, um, you know, I think that, on its face, it sounds like something very small, but it gets at something much deeper, you know, which is not feeling beautiful.
0: Yeah, well, how powerful that is. You say it's a small thing, but it's like to know that it's not just you who looked at your own face and said, like, something about this feels wrong.
3: Um, Yeah, it just feels like this little, I don't know, it's almost like this, I don't know, this like underground club or something that we're all part of. Um, And the other funny thing is that, so I have a photo of myself um, at the um, adoption agency sitting on my foster mother's lap and all of the adoptees who are part of my project have the exact same photo in the same exact style sitting on the same type of chair um, with their foster mothers. It's almost like, you know, showing someone your your membership card to some secret organization and mm-hmm. and realizing like wait you're you're part of this club too.
0: Matt eventually did get a job as a photographer at a college where he met someone in another department who was also a Korean adoptee. They bonded over his photo project and she invited him out with a group of coworkers and then they kept hanging out.
3: Yeah, you know, I have like a little work friend group here. And um, I think just by coincidence, um, there's maybe only one or two people who are um, who are white in that group. And so it's a very diverse friend circle, which also I've never experienced before. And um, but, yeah, I guess when I do interact with other um, either staff members or faculty members here at the college who are non-white um, it almost feels like, even if they're not k- Korean, because most of them are not, um, it, I almost feel like a some sense of solidarity, you know, like there's like a a subtle look.
0: A look, like a, a kind of like nod, like, I see you over there,
3: like that kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I think that's only happening in my head, um, but it's... I don't um, know.
0: I bet it's actually <laughs> happening.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who knows, maybe. Um, the only word I can think of to describe that is just comfortable. Um mm. Like the first time we all went out, we were at a uh, a nearby brewery, and we had a big table of all of us, and and everybody else um, there was white, and but I think we probably outnumbered the rest of the people, and um, it's just nice being um, around people who make you feel like you aren't standing out, and it's just a it's a feeling I'm not really accustomed to, so I'm, something I'm getting used to.
0: Coming up, we hear from Chrisana and Sarah, two friends who've stayed close while giving each other space.
4: Things are different in that we're not in the same city anymore, but in some ways I feel that our friendship has really grown with our life circumstances.
0: While we were producing this episode, I spoke with a listener named Cristobal, who told us about how our 2020 episode around race and friendship had helped him.
5: There was someone in there that had said something about just not really fitting in um, or feeling like you're part of your culture. I did grow up in a very, you know, Hispanic, Mexican-American community, but there was this sense that I didn't belong with them. You know, my dad, while he was born in Mexico, raised in the U.S., he decided to blend in. And so we lost a lot of the history and the culture. So, you know, I grew up with my dad listening to the Beatles, um, which which I love. (laughs) The Beatles are great. But uh, I never listened to Mexican music or even anything in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. I, you know, really lost that connection.
0: Cristobal said the episode helped him understand where he's felt ease in friendships and where there's been strain. He also said that a few months after that episode came out, when the pandemic shutdown started in March of 2020, he got a lot of help from our Pandemic Toolkit, a spreadsheet of activities and coping mechanisms that we built with you, our listeners, to help us all get through it. He ended up using the spreadsheet at work,
5: So I I work in politics and we were doing COVID check-ins with constituents. And what we ended up doing is we would call people and just check in, you know, how are you doing? What do you need? And I had this document I was compiling where I needed additional resources for, you know, ways for parents to enrich their child's lives. And the spreadsheet that Money put together you know, really gave me that outlet.
0: I just love that. Cristobal is an example of the incredible listeners that make up our Death, Sex and Money community. And I loved hearing how he uses our work to inspire different connections and conversations in his life. And that's why he gives a monthly donation to support our work. If our show offers the same thing for you, please consider becoming a sustaining member. We are just 50 people away from meeting our goal for this fall. So please visit deathsexmoney.org and click on Donate to sign up to give us a monthly donation. Or you can just text the letters DSM to the number 70101. Please join this community of listener supporters. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy. Whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you.
5: The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. For our episode in 2020 about race and friendship, I spoke to Sarah Lohr and Chrisana White, who met as coworkers in New York and became very close. Chrisana is Black. Sarah is white. And they talked then about how they had learned to be direct about their differences. But Krissana also mentioned there were some ways she felt Sarah had let her down.
6: I think there have been instances where she hasn't used her privilege. And I just wish that like she would that it didn't take me to go into the office and say something that she would speak up. I shouldn't be the one doing this all the time. Or at all. You told her that. I I didn't tell her that.
0: When we caught up recently on Zoom, I asked them whether they remembered that part of our conversation.
6: Well, we
4: re- we remember.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
4: <laughs> yeah, we definitely talked about it after the interview. Um, how do we think back on it, Krasana?
6: <laughs> you seem to have <laughs> some feelings about it, Sarah.
4: <laughs> no, I'm curious about yours.
6: Yeah. That's a conversation I, I wish I would have had with Sarah beforehand and not... On, <laughs> not on death, sex, and money for the first time. Hmm. Um, so I, I think looking back on it, I would have handled it differently.
4: Yeah, like some of what we talked about, we hadn't talked about before. And so, mm-hmm. and I do think at some point, Kristana was like, ooh, sorry, I did that to you on air on a national radio program. Yeah. But it was also good for us. Like, I appreciated the apology. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, what are you talking about? It was so organic for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also. I also felt like it was like a good push in the end.
0: Their lives have changed in big ways in the last three years, but they still hold each other close. We've been really intentional about our friendship,
6: and we've been really connected. I, I, I feel really connected to Sarah.
0: Keeping up with each other, though, takes effort, in a way it didn't when they were co-workers.
4: Chrisana had a really great idea that we would read big friendship together.
0: Big Friendship, the book Aminatou Sow and Anne Friedman wrote about their friendship.
4: I remember being like, oh, this is such a Krasana idea, but it was like so perfect.
0: Reading that book together also helped them talk through the big changes happening in their lives, like when Krasana moved away from New York City. My
6: wife was offered her dream job. <laughs> she, she works at Smith College, and there was no way that I was moving to the quaint town of Northampton. How come? Uh, just a little a little too
0: small for my big personality. Instead, she settled in New Haven with her wife. But Krasana says she isn't working that hard to befriend her new neighbors there. I typically have like a no new friends policy. I think that's, that's how
6: I... I
4: got it you know, under this. the wire.
6: <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. People, people gravitate towards me.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you listening to this? Well... I hope everybody's taking note to this hubris. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Friendship's don't bother, are fine. filled. <laughs> Please do not submit any applications.
0: <laughs> Sarah has also seen a whole new world of friendship options open up, mom friends. Since we talked, Sarah had a baby, and she has mixed feelings about the social aspects of parenthood. Sarah has told me some stories.
4: <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of wonderful mothers in the world, Anna, and a lot of wonderful parents. And then, of course, you meet a lot of other people, too. Brooklyn's Brooklyn, man. Every, everybody's uh, Everybody has, like, pretty high expectations for their kids. And there's a lot of high-intensity parenting around. <laughs> but I am trying to take it one step at a time and, and maintain a circle of low-intensity parents. <laughs>
0: Um, From Chrisana's reaction, it sounds like she's gotten some Brooklyn parenting reports.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to have some people on the outside so you can be like, is it me or is this not where I want to be headed, right? I should steer to the right now, right?
0: But despite their closeness, Chrisana and Sarah know they do not need to be each other's everything. Like in the summer of 2020, there were conversations they didn't have on purpose.
4: I think I intuitively knew that... This was not a conversation for me and persona Like, this is not a conversation, like, this was not, like, I, I think I knew she did not want to process this with, with white people.
6: Yeah. You know, like, while I didn't process, like, the Black death and Black tragedy with Sarah, there was a, a whole host of things, like, going on in my personal life that I did process with Sarah. And I was like, Sarah, like, tell me I'm not crazy about, about mm-hmm. like, X, Y, and Z. Like, sometimes I'll be going through something or I'll be in a rut. And... I'll open up my text messages and I'll text Sarah exactly how I'm feeling. And it'll be like the most vulnerable thing. And I'm like, wow, like I figured out like what's going on with me <laughs> like just by texting Sarah.
0: Hmm.
6: Um, and like sometimes like, she don't respond right away. And I'm like, I don't I didn't need her to respond. <laughs> I just needed to like write my thoughts.
4: <laughs> and it happens the other way, too, where I'll send a bunch of messages. Mine are usually less all thought out because Anna sends like a nice long three-paragraph message that's, like, well-edited. Mine is, <clears throat> it'll be, like, 20 <laughs> short text messages in a row. I honestly think even, like, three years ago in our friendship, I would have been, like, oh, I hope I didn't say it. Like, one of those messages wasn't weird or didn't say the wrong thing. And now I'm, like, well, I'm sure there was something weird in there. <laughs> She'll get back to me. <laughs> uh, There's just a lot of, like, grace, like, the trust that, like, I could say something totally off the wall or not get it quite right But that we, like, make space for revisions, both in our own friendship, but in, like, how we see the world. Like, we've just grown Mm. a lot together. So I could say something and be, like, a month later, like, I still remember saying that, and I wish I hadn't. Or, like, (laughs) like if I could just, and sometimes she'll be like, I have forgotten. (laughs) And, like, I don't know what you're talking about, or I didn't even catch that. And other times she's like, yeah, I see why you are correcting that, and I hear you.
0: Making space for revisions works for Chrisana and Sarah. But a listener we called James back in 2020 told us about giving up on revising an old friendship and deciding to just cut someone off who'd been both a childhood best friend and roommate. James is Black, his old friend is white, and they'd grown up together in central New Jersey. He told us then about this time they watched a political debate together. And his roommate made a racist comment.
7: And that led to, like, a screaming argument to the point where I actually left my apartment that night. I was just sort of done.
0: Um, You were James in our episode that came out in early 2020. Do you
7: want to continue to be James? I can be my real name. You can't? (laughs) Unless it's confusing. No. Um,
0: I mean, I think that speaks to some kind of shift. Why can you be your real name now?
7: That is a good question. Well, I guess when we first recorded it, the big thing at the time was I was concerned about outing the person, being that, you know, like, we hadn't had a discussion about it. Um, But, I don't know, I feel like I'm further removed from that.
0: After Devin faded from his ex-roommate's life, whom we're calling Mike, Devin still got an invite to his wedding.
7: And I just said no on the RSVP. Um, and I, I imagine, you know, he's not done at this point. He sort of understands that, like, I'm not, sort of not interested in continuing our friendship. He's had a kid since then, and we still haven't spoken. I feel like um, now there's that clean break. Before, I feel like it was kind of a—not that there was a chance that we would be friends again, but— Um, I think it was still a bit open-ended if we were going to have a conversation on why we weren't friends anymore. And I think we've sort of, you know, moved past that point now.
0: It wasn't the simplest or easiest thing for Devin to disentangle from Mike. They'd been so close for so long. Their families knew each other, followed each other on social media, which came up in August of 2020 when news broke that a white police officer shot and seriously injured a Black man named Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin.
7: Mike ended up posting on his Facebook page around that time something justifying um, why uh, the man was shot. Um, And then my mom, actually, um, was engaging with him in the post, and I had to, like, tell her, like, like, don't respond.
0: Your mom got up in <laughs> his comments on Facebook.
7: We <laughs> had to have a talk. I was like, you can block him. You can unfollow him. You should not be like going back and forth with this guy on Facebook. <laughs> um, and, and
0: did she hear you or did she decide?
7: She yeah, she yeah, still yeah she, she, okay. She, she she heard me, but I think she was a bit taken aback, you know, like for her, it was a bit weird being that like, you know, he slept over my house. Mm-hmm. So I think for her, it was sort of like, wow, it's crazy that this person who I let in my house, you know, um, can have this point of view.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that a, when you think about New Jersey and hanging out mm-hmm. back where you grew up, is that a community where you want to go out and hang out with old friends.
7: No. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's weird like and I you know, I at the time I really liked growing up there, but it's not really a place that I am excited to go to or spend time. Um and I think it's it's like a bit of a reminder of the type of people that I had to sort of tolerate and the type of things that I had to tolerate. Um, And I think the biggest thing is that there, it feels like, Oh, basically I'm the person who needs to speak up. If someone says something crazy or, you know, like, whereas I feel like if, you know, those types of things were said around here, you know, there would be a lot, a lot larger of a group sort of, um, stepping up,
0: mm, including the white people who are in your life in Brooklyn,
7: yeah,, uh-huh. and I think the pandemic has played a part in that as well as that like I feel a lot more intentional with sort of like how I spend my time and who I spend my time with, so like I'm a lot less willing to sort of spend time with people who like I don't want to be around or I don't think share my values um. I feel like before I may have had a bit more of an, I felt like I had more of an obligation to like, I don't know, educate people or or do that sort of thing, whereas now my tolerance for that is really low for me. I feel like before it was sort of like, I felt more guilty about having that point of view, Um, whereas now I'm just like, no, I'm I'm good, (laughs) but you can figure it out yourself.
0: That is similar to what we heard from Antoinette in Dallas, who said that today a phone call to manage her white coworker's feelings would not give her pause.
2: I wouldn't give it nearly the amount of mental chew that I did when it happened real time.
0: Sometimes you don't have to talk about it. And that's something that I noticed when I was having these catch up conversations with listeners. I was aware how three years ago, I was sometimes pushing for everyone to get clear with their friends about where there was weirdness about race. I had this kind of faith that conversation was going to resolve something. Now I see that that was pretty white of me, because I wasn't really taking into account what that would have required from Devin or Antoinette, how much patient hand-holding it could take with people who hadn't treated them well. I brought this up with Antoinette. I think I may have even suggested to you, like, do you think you're going to loop back around with this colleague and tell her how it made you feel? And you were like, maybe, you know, like, um, so I was sort of like suggesting that that's something that ought to have happened for everybody to have yeah. clarity. Um, And what I hear you saying is like, what I've learned since we talked is like, there's a lot of these conversations that I do not need to have.
2: No. And I think even more questioning, like, what does that closure look like? Closure loop look like? And does it even need to exist?
0: Tell me what you mean by that.
2: It's kind of like with kids, and it's like when they're upset with each other, you want them to talk it out and then hug it out and then everything's okay. And I think I'm making more peace with the fact that Um, everything might not be okay.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And I guess I think sometimes when it's like, you know, this might be an unresolvable thing, so let's just move forward. Um, Sometimes the cost of that is like taking a minute to say like, I just want you to hear what my experience is and I want to feel seen, you Mm. know? Yeah. Um, have you felt that trade-off or does it feel like uh, for some people it doesn't matter if they see you?
2: I'm going to flip that and say that I'm I'm weighing more heavily does it matter to me if they see me? Um hmm And I'm accepting that not being seen doesn't diminish who I am. I think for a long time I tied those two together. Like, my worth and value is when you see me. And I'm trying to create a space where my worth and value is constant regardless of who sees me.
0: That's our listener, Antoinette. Is there anything else that you want to say?
2: Um, I appreciate the opportunity to think back on that time. There are times in life where I am very hard on myself and will be like, we are making no progress and no growth. And that's not true. And this was a space where I was able to sit and listen to myself then and compare that to myself today and notice places where it's like,
0: you're moving and growing kid. <laughs> it's happening. Thank you to all of the listeners in this episode for letting us back in. You can find a link to Matt's photography project of Korean adoptees called Where Are You Really From? in our show notes. There's also a link there to our episode with Aminatou So and Anne Friedman about their book, Big Friendship. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark, our tremendous intern. We are excited and sad to say that she is departing for a great new opportunity. Lily, thank you for all of your work. You are an immense talent. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsey Foster Thomas and Andrew Dunn. And a special thank you to Candace Evers who created both illustrations for our episodes about race and friendship. You can see those on our website at deathsexmoney.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at deathsexmoney. Money. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thank you to Jenna Carmichael in Dalton, Pennsylvania for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Jenna and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Crisana, I feel like you're uh, more reserved this time as we're talking.
4: Whoa! Well, well, I love a call-out. I love a call-out.
6: <laughs> I don't know if I'm more reserved, but... You know, Anna, you, you're not asking the heavy hit of questions <laughs> that you usually ask, though. So, know. wow.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I can sharpen the daggers. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.